Amen. Good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and welcome to what we're calling Be Bold Sunday. And uh, hopefully that'll make sense as we move through this and by the time we leave. Uh, but I, uh, I hope that and pray that you're, you're going to be challenged today, but I hope that ultimately you're encouraged. All right, so we're finishing up our series on Sunday mornings that we've been doing through January called Main Things. We've just been dialing in on main things that the Bible teaches us that we need to keep as main things in our lives as disciples and as a church in order for us to stay on course to make the impact in this world that God's called us to make. And so week one, we uh, looked at the Word of God. Week two, we talked about the main thing of prayer. Uh, last week, we talked about generosity. And this week, we're dialing in on one more main thing, and it's the main thing of evangelism. All right? In other words, as people who were once lost and who have now been found, the Bible's very clear as to what we're supposed to spend the rest of our lives being all about in Christ. We're found people who find people. We're found people who find people. Have you ever gotten lost before? All right. Most of us have. Now, as, adult, as adults, if you get lost, usually what you mean is you got lost on a trip, you got lost uh, out on the road somewhere, and that's not a super scary thing most of the time, right? You have your phone to kind of get you out of that jam. Uh, but if you've ever either lost a child or been a child that's been lost, that can be a very scary thing, right? I remember when I, some of you have been there before. Uh, I remember when I was a young teenager, our family had gone to a night game down in Gainesville, the swamp, uh, to watch the Gators um, and I apologize for any fans of this team that I'm about to say, but the Gators uh, put a stomping on the Tennessee Volunteers that night, all right? They just did. And so uh, we left uh, the swamp. We left the stadium as at night. And if you've ever been down there at a night game after a game like that, it's a very celebratory atmosphere, all right? You got that main drag, and you got all those college frat houses that line it. So it was getting a little crazy, all right? So we're with our family trying to get out of the stadium on our way to the car, just tons and tons of people. And uh, I, uh, our family stops for a minute, a second to kind of, I guess, to figure out which way to go. And I turn around just to kind of take in the crazy atmosphere. And I guess I turned around a little too long because I turned back around and my family was gone. They left me there. All right. And so there I was. And so I did uh, what I was uh, told to do if I ever got in that situation. And I just stayed put. I stayed right where I was at. Didn't have a cell phone, just stood there and I saw a bench. And so I sat down on a bench and I sat there and I waited and I waited, and I waited, and I waited some more, and the crowd started to thin, and I waited some more, and I'm like, my family's left me, right? They've orchestrated this whole event to leave me here to kick me out of the family. I'm gone. I don't have a family anymore. I'm like thinking through how I'm going to move on with my life and survive, right? And then in the distance, finally, I saw a silhouette that looked familiar, and I yelled my dad's name, and he yelled my name, and he runs uh, down the street, and my older brother's with him, right? And as he gets near me, it's kind of like some of you parents have been there. It's like I look on his face, and it's that mixed expression of like extreme frustration, but extreme relief, you know? So it's those two things happening, right? He's like, where have you been? I'm like, I'm right where y'all left me, right? I'm, I've been here. I've been sitting here waiting for y'all, right? And he, the frustration kind of eased up, and he said, I'm glad you're all right, and I'm sure he gave me a stern talking to about paying attention, right? Uh, I'm sure that was Definitely, I had some, uh, some, some things to, to own there myself. But I remember my brother, we were walking away, and he was like, dude, I'm not going to lie. He whispered, I was so afraid we were going to, like, me and Dad were going to find you, like, in the front yard of one of these frat party houses, like, sliding on a slip and slide, partying it up or something. <laughs> like, thanks a lot, bro. Thanks for the faith that you have in me. 
you knew me in high school, that wasn't an entirely invalid concern, all right? But I didn't enjoy being lost that night, but I was grateful that I was found, right? Don't like getting lost. Getting lost isn't fun, but if you get found, you know, it ends up being okay. Being lost is not fun. Let me tell you one thing that is worse and more sad than being lost is being lost and nobody's looking for you. And that's especially true spiritually speaking. And when you look at the New Testament, when you look at every example of every believer that we have documented in the New Testament, what you find are Christians, are disciples who are expected to be in the business of finding people. Found people who find people. You know, here's, here's a tragic, sad reality about the community that surrounds us this morning. Not just the community, but the city and the world is right outside of these walls. And we'll just talk about our community. The lostness and the Christlessness and the indifference to the things of God and the indifference to what we're doing this morning and the amount of spiritual wanderers that surround us and the lostness, it is vast, tragically vast. But what makes it more sad and what makes it more tragic is not enough people are looking for people within that vast darkness. There's a shortage. It's not just our town. There's a shortage across the world, across our nation of local churches who are truly seeking to embrace who Jesus has positioned and commissioned us to be wherever he's placed us as a church and to be in our community and beyond. And that's to be a search and rescue mission for Christ, for the glory of God. Another way to say it, and this is a quote we'll keep coming back to this morning, is we're called to be a community of people, of found people who never stop finding people. Of found people who never stop finding people. That's always been God's plan to reach the world. We tend to overcomplicate that. His plan has never changed. The scope of the mission is huge. The scope of the mission is big. It's to the ends of the earth, but the means of the mission and the way we go about it is really quite simple. All right, It's people who know Christ, who one person at a time boldly tell other people about Christ. That's the strategy. That is the means of the mission. You say, where do you get that? You get it right here from John chapter 1. As Jesus is launching his earthly ministry, this is a ministry that's going to literally change the world. Over 2 billion people today profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. Plenty, plenty and a lot tragic amount. I've never heard about him. I need to hear about him. But over 2 billion people profess to know him. And this in John chapter 1, it shows us where it all started. Where the church, where the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ began to be made. And in John chapter 1, we find the way that he launches this movement that will literally change the world. What's he going to do? Is he going to hire a marketing team? Right? Is he going to develop a slick branding strategy? Right? Is he going to launch a cutting-edge program that will engage the masses? Not saying that all the things are bad. But when we get back to the basics, when we go back and see how it all began, what Jesus does is he gives us a simple model of evangelism that we continue to follow even today. It's a progression of people pointing other people to Jesus. It's that simple. All right. So let's keep that in mind as we read this. Let's keep that in mind this morning as we are going to be encouraged to be bold witness for Christ. All right. Stand with your Bibles open. And let's see how it all began. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard them say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the rock. Verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray this morning that this would be a sober reminder of who you've called us to be. It's so easy for us to stray away from this, to drift away from this, wander away from this. And so, Lord, I pray that it would be a sober and convicting reminder of who you've called us to be, but I pray we'd leave encouraged. Lord, we're thankful that your word guides us. We're thankful, Lord, that your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. I pray that it'd be that this morning, that you'd show us where we need to change, and that by your Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, that you would change us and conform us more into the image of your Son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this passage communicates a really important central truth, main thing, that's what we're in, the series is called, for us as disciples of Jesus. All right, so from John the Baptist to Andrew to Philip, what we see here is that the most loving, the most natural thing that we can do as Christ followers is to help another person who doesn't know Christ to, to meet him. To help people who don't know Jesus to meet Jesus, all right? Another way we're going to say it this morning is found people, find people, all right? Found people, what? All right, say it together. Found people, that's it. That's what we do. That's why our mission statement is what it is. Uh, Rooted in Scripture, rooted in the Great Commission, here's our mission statement. That we're a people committed as a church to following Christ and engaging everyday people with the gospel to be fully restored and satisfied in Him. Now, this is a passage that helps us understand what that looks like. All right. So what I want us to see this morning is I want us to see three principles from this text that we need to apply to our lives if we're going to be bold found people who are boldly finding people. Bold found people who are boldly seeking to find people who need Jesus. The first principle that we learn in this text is this. Bold witnesses are disciples who daily celebrate and communicate who Jesus is to people who are lost. All right? Bold witnesses celebrate and communicate who Christ is. That sounds really simple, but all through this narrative, what you see is Jesus' identity being celebrated and communicated through the lives of these bold first witnesses for Christ. First, you see it with John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. That's who John is right here. All right? He's like the eccentric hipster guy with the beard with bugs in it, right? Kind of a different guy, but he's, 
He's, he loves God. He's got a school of some students that he's teaching about God, teaching about the coming Messiah. And in verse 36, he points to Jesus. This is the point that he takes these students and he points to Jesus and he says, guys, he's the one I've been talking about. He's the one to give your life to. He's the one that you want to follow. In fact, he says it this way, behold the Lamb of God. Now, in your Bible, you're going to see an exclamation point at the end of that phrase right there. In other words, he's saying this with passion. He's saying this with enthusiasm, with excitement. All right, and remember that these are John the Baptist's guys. These are his disciples that he's sharing this with. And so Jesus walks by. He doesn't just kind of simply, plainly, just you know, with no emotion, just simply kind of share with them information about who Jesus is. With passion, he declares it. He says, y'all look at him right there. Look at him. Follow him. Look at him right there. Follow him. He's the Lamb of God. And John's disciples turn to Jesus, they leave John, they begin to follow Christ. And it makes you wonder if the camera was to pan back to John the Baptist in this moment, in Scripture. Like, he's pointing people to Christ, they're leaving him and following Jesus. Like, if it was to come back to John the Baptist in this moment, like, what are the emotions on his face? Is he sad in this moment, right? As his class is being dismissed, like Mr. Feeney in the Boy Meets World, class dismissed, tear 90s kids will appreciate that right there. What do you see? No, you see him thrilled as they're walking towards Christ. You see him thrilled to see them following Jesus. We see that in John chapter 3, verse 30. He's actually asked about Jesus gaining all of these followers. And you know what he says there that John records? It says, John says, he must increase and I must decrease. John's heart is where it's supposed to be. John's not about building his own kingdom. It wasn't about the kingdom of John. Right? It's about Jesus. John understood what the world needed most was not John. It was Jesus. And that's why we see him joyfully declaring this about Jesus. Why? Because he believes in his heart. He truly believes in his heart who Jesus is. He truly believes in his heart about Jesus' identity as the Messiah. He says, right there is the Lamb of God who takes, later he'll say, who takes away the sins of the world. Run after him. Never look back. That's who you follow. That's who you give your life to. That's who your life is to be completely about. You also sense some enthusiasm and excitement uh, from Andrew and Philip. Andrew finds Peter, and it's, it's conjecture here, a little bit of conjecture here, but you can almost hear the excitement, and almost like he's out of breath right there in verse 41, like, Peter, we found the Messiah. Philip finds Nathan in verse 42, kind of the same thing. We found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. We found him. It's excitement. It's enthusiasm. The Messiah is here. You can sense joy in the way that they are communicating this, right? This is the person. This is who, for generation after generation after generation, their nation, unknowingly the world, has been waiting for. This is the one that the world has been waiting for, and all of a sudden their lives collide with him, and they meet him in the flesh. And as they discover his messianic identity, it radically changes their life, and they can't keep it to themselves. It's celebratory. It's celebratory news. And the way, the most natural way that we celebrate something that's worth celebrating as we share about it. The most natural way we celebrate something that's worth celebrating is we share about it, right? That's why all across social media today, you're going to see posts about engagements. You're going to see uh, wedding day posts, all kinds of pictures. You're going to see we're expecting posts. And then you're going to see a bunch of gender reveal posts. Right? Because people want to celebrate that. They want to invite you in to celebrate. That's something that's worth celebrating, which means it's worth sharing. All right? So, it, which get really crazy, right? 
people. It's amazing how many people don't get hurt by the things people are trying, you know, in using to uh, communicate to everybody what gender their baby's going to be. Like, you know, they got balloons and bottle rockets going through the balloons and pink powder and blue powder exploding out. Why are they doing that? Because it's something worth celebrating. And the most natural way to celebrate something worth celebrating is to share it with somebody. And for these first disciples, the Lamb of God arriving into the world to save the world, that was really good news. Cause for celebration, and it naturally naturally resulted, not mechanical, naturally resulted in the running out and sharing it with people. And here's the reality. That gospel is still really good news worth celebrating. Eleven people in here agree with me on that. That news is still really good news worth celebrating. All right? News too good to keep to ourselves. Especially, this is very important, if we remember how bad the bad news was. It was bad. In fact, the reality of how bad the bad news was is what makes what Jesus did to solve the bad news such good news. You want to know the reason why so many of us so often are guilty of not being the bold witnesses that we should be? You want to know the reason why so many of us don't with joy, with celebration, and with naturalness, share the good news of the gospel is because we don't remember enough. And I think for Christians even sometimes we don't believe enough how bad the bad news was for us and how bad the bad news continues to be for people who don't know Jesus. You know what our problem is? Is a lot of the times we don't think people are as lost as the Bible says, that, says, it is, says they are. You know what our problem is? Is we don't often believe enough that hell is as real as the Bible says it is. We don't often think that the world is broken and is desperate and in need of a Savior as it really is. You say, don't put those words in my mouth. Tell me, how, how can you say that with such confidence? How can you say that people don't believe that the bad news is as bad as it really is? Because if we did, if we really as Christians believe that it's as bad as it really is, there's no way we would as comfortably and just slowly meander through life as so many of our loved ones and so many of our friends and so many of our neighbors never hear about Christ from our lips. Never receive an invitation to Christ. Here's what we see with the first disciples. And it's something that we should all be able to recall in our life as believers. They're beyond overwhelmed. They're, they're beyond excited that they were so lost, that it was so bad, that they were in such dire need of a Savior, and now they've been found by a real Savior who really has the authority and the power to save them out of the grip of hell. This is why their joy is so deep. They're, they're, they're convinced, they're completely convinced that they have met the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, which is the title that Nathan uses right there, all referring to the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior, all of uh, pointing to that He's the fulfillment of Messianic prophecies. And they want to celebrate. They can't contain it. They're like beggars who found the literally found the bread of life. And that only makes sense for us as beggars who found bread to go out and tell a bunch of other beggars where to find the bread. And a lack of evangelism in our life is so often traced back and connected to in our heart. There's a lack of awe and wonder that was once there when we collided with the gospel initially. And we knew how bad the bad news was. And that's what made the good news such good news. Good news worth celebrating. And news worth celebrating 
is most naturally celebrated through sharing it with other people. Number two, bold witnesses are disciples who daily invite people to Christ and into or near the community of faith. Bold witnesses invite people to Christ and into community. So in this narrative, you see this evangelistic culture on display that, invo- that involves these people bringing all kinds of different people to Christ, like all kinds of different people within their sphere of influence to Jesus. First, you see Andrew pointing people in his life, really pointing the closest people to him in his life, to Christ, his family. His first thought when he meets Christ is, I got to tell my brother. I got to get to my brother as fast as possible, and I got to tell him about Jesus. I got to invite him to come meet him, right? And by the way, anytime you see Andrew in Scripture, he's all in the Gospels, he's always bringing people. He's a bringer. He's always bringing people to Jesus. Some of you are bringers. I just want to commend you for that. I want to encourage you for that. That's such an important ministry. That's a ministry that changes eternity, that can change eternity. That's, some of you are always bringing somebody. Somebody, you just see you throughout the year, bringing somebody with you to church, bringing somebody with you along to introduce them to Christ in different ways. That matters. Be a bringer. But look at who he brings. He brings Simon, his brother, who will go on to be the apostle Peter, right? We don't talk a lot about Andrew. We talk a lot about Peter, don't we? But without Andrew, there's no Peter. Right? Without, without a faithful Sunday school teacher in the 1800s named Edward Kimball, there's no Dwight L. Moody. He led Dwight L. Moody who, to Jesus, who is a very well-known figure, a very well-known person in church history who led this big evangelistic gospel preaching ministry through which hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of people came to know Christ as a result of. Or what about Mordecai Ham? Anybody know about Mordecai Ham? Not a super well-known preacher that we talk about this day from... Uh, to this day from church history but he was a faithful preacher who one day evangelist who gave an invitation one night in 1934 and invited people to come to Christ that night and one man one young man responded that night you know his name was Billy Graham God uses Andrews in powerful ways to advance his kingdom to push forward his gospel work in this world and everybody can be an Andrew you can be an Andrew listen don't underestimate the kind of influence that you can have as an Andrew, as a bringer, bringing people to Christ. Because all of us have people in our sphere of influence, people who need to hear about Jesus, people who don't know Christ, family members, neighbors, people who are far from God, who we love, who we have a burden for, and we can be an Andrew. We can invite him to Christ. Second kind of person that we see here being brought to Jesus is Philip's friend Nathaniel. And he gives us a picture of somebody who's skeptical. Y'all know anybody in your life who's skeptical? You may be here this morning and you're skeptical. And I want you to know if that's you, this is an okay place for you to be, to ask questions, to figure some things out. This is a safe place for you to do that. I want you to know that. Right? And it's not a bad thing to ask questions. Right? Some people are just naturally skeptical. I, before I came to Christ, you know, I was very analytical and naturally skeptical. I had a lot of questions. That's Nathaniel. Philip says to Nathaniel, he says, We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And the Nazareth part throws him off right there immediately, skeptical. And he's like, I don't buy it. He immediately just pushes back. He's skeptical. I don't buy it. And you've got people in your life who don't buy it. You've got people in your life who go, you really believe all that's true? People who you love, who you have a relationship with, who see this part of your life and what you've committed your life to, and you're here like 46, 47 weeks out of the year worshiping here at church, and you're involved in church life, and you read your Bible, and you're a Christian, and they look at your life, and, and they don't buy it. They say, you you really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Yeah, I believe that. Isn't Jesus just a legend? 
Right? Isn't, what in the world does Jesus, a Jewish carpenter from the first century, who died a Roman execution on a cross outside of Jerusalem, and who you say rose from the dead, what does that have to do with my life today? Is the Bible even really a relevant book? Hasn't science disproven the Bible? People have questions like that, like Nathan. Right? Now, his skepticism is a little different than a lot of the agnostic and atheistic skepticism that we see around us today. But there are things we can learn about as we look at this skeptic right here that can help us as we deal with and minister to and have interaction with skeptics in our life, no matter what kind of skeptic they are. Here's the kind of skeptic he was. Nathan was skeptical about... He wasn't skeptical about the existence of God. He actually read his Bible, as we'll see in a second. He believed in God. He even believed a Messiah was coming. He just wasn't convinced that it could be Jesus. Because Philip said he was from Nazareth. That's like Nowheresville. That's like the little small podunky town. It's got nothing there that you graduate high school from and you get as far away as you can because there's like two jobs and I don't want either one of them. This is a small town. A king can't be born in Nazareth is, is, what, is in his mind. And he also is been a, he, he's grown up learning the Old Testament. He understands the prophecy out of Micah that says that the king... That the Messiah is going to be born where? In David's town of Bethlehem. We know the circumstances that happened for that to take place. Nathan doesn't know that in this moment. He's skeptical. But notice that Jesus doesn't disparage him. Notice the way that Jesus deals with him. He welcomes him with all of his questions. He welcomes him with all of his doubts. He welcomes him with all of his concerns and his confusion. And what we see something right here with Nathan and Nathan coming to Christ, lean in and listen to this because you've got a skeptic probably in your life that you're trying to minister to. And some of you here are skeptics. And maybe this will help you this morning. Maybe... I know you're skeptic, but maybe the Holy Spirit can use this to do something in your life. Because look at what happens in Nathan's life. He doesn't become a believer because his top 10 or 15 questions about Jesus and about the Messiah and about spirituality and about religion and about God are answered all in that sit-down meeting with Jesus. He becomes a follower of Christ and he becomes convinced that Jesus is Messiah because in faith he steps towards Jesus. In faith, he steps into a relationship with Christ. And it's not that his questions disappear. It's just kind of like they take a back seat in light of the real-life, powerful encounter he's having as in faith he's stepping towards Christ. We know skeptics in our life, man. You may have somebody in your life and you're thinking, man, you don't know them. You don't know know my brother. You don't know my cousin. You don't know my friend at work. You don't know the type of my, my son or my daughter. And the questions that they got, I mean, they got hostility towards the Christian faith. You don't understand the questions that they ask. It's kind of intimidating. They're really smart. They're a lot smarter than I am. They ask me questions I don't know the answers to. Sometimes I'm not even sure how to be a bold witness to them. But you know what you do with a skeptic? Hey, you spend time in a real way being, if you don't know answers to the questions, I don't know the answer to that. But we're going to run. There's resources out there that give really intelligible answers that, by really smart Christians who give really good answers in the, in the area of apologetics who answer really difficult questions. Hey, that's okay. We're going to spend some time doing that. We can work through some questions. There's nothing wrong with that. All that's good. But as I do those things, what you've got to remember that the most important thing you could ever do for a skeptic is pray for them first of all. Pray for them and pray for them and pray for them and then just work really hard to get them in front of Jesus. That's what you focus on. Work really hard to get him in front of Jesus. Philip responds to Nathan's skepticism, not with a theological answer as to how Jesus was born. He doesn't even go into that. He doesn't hand him an apologetics book. He answers with three words. Come and see. Just come and see. 
It's, you just come, at, you come and see what you think. Something we do as bold witnesses is we work hard to arrange meetings between Jesus and that person who's lost that we love. We invite them to encounter Jesus and a way we arrange meetings with them and Jesus is, hey, we live out the gospel in front of them with our own life with our own words and the way we live. We demonstrate the gospel. We demonstrate Jesus before them. That's how we can invite them to encounter Christ in us. We help arrange meetings between them and Jesus by pointing them to the scriptures, encouraging them, hey, you investigate it for yourself. You read through the gospels on your own. You deal with the claims in your own heart. We meet with them. We have gospel conversations with them. We build a relationship with them and talk about the gospel within the context of that relationship. But we also keep something else in mind. Another really good way for you to introduce them to Jesus and to allow them and to arrange meetings with Christ is by inviting them to be around the community of faith. Don't underestimate the impact that an invitation to church can have in a lost person's life. As what the, because what they're doing when they come to a church like ours is they are seeing Jesus actively working in and through the lives of his people. This morning, I, let me ask you, how many of you this morning, and just raise your hand in a moment, how many of you came to Christ during a time in your life that you were attending a church or as a result of somebody inviting you to church or somebody bringing you to church or in some environment that was connected to a local church? How many of you came to Christ in those circumstances? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. That's a lot of us in the room. That's a lot of us in the room. Inviting people to church matters. And by the way, that's why what happens in this body really matters. That's why the way we treat each other matters. That's why us being Jesus to one another and extending truth, but also extending grace and forgiveness and mercy matters. That's why the way we serve one another when we're here on campus and throughout the week together matters. That's why what we do here matters. That's why when we gather together and sing songs to Jesus, what we're singing, what's being preached, it matters. Because this is a great place to invite lost people to. And in Sunday morning gatherings all over the world this morning, Jesus is at work in a more unique and special way that's more powerful than anywhere else on the planet this morning. I truly believe that based upon the Word of God. He's at work here. He's at work here in and through the lives of His people. This is a great place to invite people to encounter Christ. You say, well, why would I invite, why would I invite an unbeliever to church? Why would I invite a lost person to church? Right? Why? They don't even believe that God is real. They don't even believe that the Bible is true. You didn't either. You were lost too. And yet it was in the context of a church, of you coming to church, or you being invited to church, or you going to a camp that was put on by a church, that God got a hold of your life. So we invite them to come and see, and they're able to experience Jesus at work in this community of faith. I'm not saying that's all you do. All right? It's very important, and... The Bible shows us that it, it entails somebody coming to Christ, someone sitting down with them, walking them through the Scriptures, making sure that they understand the Gospel, right? People have to hear the Gospel. They have to respond to the Gospel. Later today, we're going to have training that's going to help you understand how to do that, have Gospel conversations with people, and how you can point them to Jesus in a way that's biblical and point them to Christ. But inviting them to church allows them in a way to encounter Christ in a real way. It allows them to see and to watch God at work right here. It allows them to hear God's word being preached. It allows them to be up and close and personal with people, faith-filled people who are gathering together in unison to worship Christ the King. That's why invitations to church matter. Listen carefully to this. 
your wandering friends, and I want you to think about them right now, your lost co-workers, your skeptical neighbors and family, they'll never, they won't have an opportunity to have a conversation face-to-face in the flesh with Jesus like Andrew did. Rather, Nathaniel did. They'll not have an opportunity to stand there and touch the nail-scarred hands of Jesus like Doubting Thomas did. But what they do have an opportunity to do in a real and powerful way is to see the crucified, risen Lord at work in and through His people through a local church like this. So we invite them. We invite them to church. So let's be inviters. We bring people in a way we can arrange meetings between lost people in Christ is by inviting them to church. Now, let's air out of the room right here, all right? Because when we, when we get into this topic right here, it's a convicting topic. When we start thinking about the amount of time that we spend doing a lot of other things, in the little amount of time, if any amount of time that we spend intentionally bringing people and boldly pointing people to Christ, it can feel guilty, it can feel embarrassing, it can feel convicting, it can feel like, man, can you kind of get this over with so I can just go on to lunch and move on with my day? But I want you to know, first of all, that this is something we need. That the Bible is called the sword of the Spirit. And what that means is the sword, the sword has to cut us to heal us, right? And that's really the way that it should be thought about. Like when we get cut by the word of God, it's more like a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon who loves us, who's cutting us to heal us. So in that moment, in this moment when you're convicted, remember that, that this is good. This is something we need to shape us and to mold us into disciples that Christ has called us to be. I also want you to know this. This is an okay where it's, this is a place where it's okay to admit you ain't got all this together. Because we're all on a journey together. We're all figuring this out together. And we can all look back over this last week and think about opportunity after opportunity that slipped through our grasp where we could have pointed people to Jesus. And I want you to know that this is, an okay, this is a place where it's okay to be not okay. It's, an okay to, it's a place where it's okay to admit that, to, to admit failure, right? But as we'll say often, this is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's never okay to stay not okay. Because the Holy Spirit wants to help grow us and wants to use His Word to push us forward to be the bold witnesses that He's calling us to be. So I want you to remember that as we move forward. And this last point, I really think, can help us. Because it's really a liberating truth, right? Here's the last point this morning. Bold witnesses trust Jesus with the results. Bold witnesses trust Jesus with the results. So we do the inviting, we do the pointing, we do the meeting arranging, but then we have to trust Jesus with the results, right? This is what we see with Andrew and Philip. Do we not see them doing that right here? Like they get their lost family, they get their lost friends to Jesus and kind of just let him take over. And that's what we do. We share the gospel, we get people in front of Jesus, we pray for them, and then we just trust Jesus. This narrative reminds us why we do that. Number one, because only Christ can change them. He alone can change him. We learn that from Simon Peter, don't we? Do we not learn that from Peter right here in this passage? In in verse 42, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Petros, that means the rock, man. Peter gets a nickname right here. Jesus gives him like a WWF wrestling nickname. The rock, you're going to be called the rock, brother. And that sounds really cool. And it goes, wow, that's that's neat. But then you you begin to, to trace Peter's life. 
And you begin to see the way that he lives after this encounter with Christ. And as you track his life, it's like the last nickname I give him is, is Rock. He's like a loose cannon. He's wishy-washy. Kind of kite in the wind kind of brain. He's thinking this thing at this time. Thinking this th- thing at this time. He's been called a disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. He's always putting his foot in his mouth and then having to take things back. He's all over the ma- map. He rebukes Jesus. He denies, betrays Jesus multiple times in Jesus' most crucial hour. Not the most solid guy. The rock. But then you see Peter in Acts post-Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching, and 3,000 people responding to his invitation. Then you see Peter grow into this foundational leader in the early church, this apostle. You know what legend teaches us? That because he wouldn't shut up about the gospel, even when it was against the law, and they threatened to kill him, he wouldn't shut up, and he died as a martyr. And legend has it, legend says, in church history, that he was crucified upside down after watching his wife be crucified before his eyes. That sounds more like a solid rock. How did that happen? How does that happen? Because Jesus that day in John chapter 1 looked at him and said, you shall be called Peter, you're going to be a rock. He's speaking with authority right here. This isn't an opinion. This isn't him giving a lighthearted nickname to Peter like Bubba or something like that. When Jesus, What Jesus is saying right here is, I'm going to transform your identity. Who you are is not who you will be. I'm not looking at you right now for who you are right now. I'm looking at you for what you are going to become as a result of my spirit working in you. And that's exactly what happened in the life of Peter. The Holy Spirit filled his life and what Jesus promised him happened. He turned into a Holy Spirit filled solid disciple for Christ. And that's an encouragement to you, Christian, this morning. Read Philippians chapter 1. He's going to finish the work he started in you. He saved you. He's going to sanctify you. One day he's going to glorify you. But this is also an encouragement about that person in your life. Who they need to change. They need to collide with the gospel. And I don't know who that person is, but you need to remember this morning that the only change, the only way that that deep inner change can happen in their life, that forever change... That can only happen as a result of Jesus doing that work. And and Jesus doing that work can only happen. Because Jesus is the only one that can connect us with God. You see that? Jesus is the only one who can do the work. And to finish that life over a lifetime of work of turning us into a solid disciple. And one day glorifying us and conforming us fully to his image. But he's only able to do that work. Because he's the only one who can connect us with God. And that's the last thing we learn right here. Jesus alone can connect us with God. We learn that in verse 48. Nathaniel, look, look at verse 48. Nathaniel said to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Man, he turned from a skeptic to a believer really quick right there. How did Jesus overcome his skepticism so quickly? How did that happen? You're like, all he says is your name is Nathaniel. Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Well, the phrase fig tree is actually a euphemism that was used in the first century for reading your Bible. The way men, the way people would read scriptures outside is you'd often find them under fig trees in the shade, the heat of the day. So don't bother your dad. He's out under the fig tree. He's out having his quiet time. And so when he hears that phrase, what Nathan realizes 
And Jesus even says it is Jesus, some, he, he knew, before I showed up right here, he knew where I was and what I was doing. And so his life collides with this man who is no man, the son of man, who is able to know what he was doing just a few moments before he arrived across town. But then Jesus proceeds to reference the portion of Scripture we believe that he's probably reading there under the victory. Because look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the victory, do you believe? You will see, do you believe what you read? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is quoting Genesis 28. In in that story, we call it Jacob's Ladder. That's what we believe Nathan was reading there under the fig tree. Jacob's one of the patriarchs of our faith, and he's a really messed up guy too. He was running from God and really skeptical too. And in one of the most desperate situations of his life God gives him this vision through a dream and the heavens open up and he sees this ladder going into the heavens and these angels ascending and descending on this ladder and and Jesus says to Nathan hey basically this is what Jesus is saying hey you're going to see greater things oh you think it's cool you think it's cool that I saw you under the fig tree and saw you reading your Bible well here here's something else I know what verse you are reading and furthermore than that it's all about me he's saying Jacob's I'm Jacob's ladder. I'm the place where heaven touches earth. I'm the ladder. I alone, exclusively, I'm the only way to the Father. I'm the only bridge in existence that can bridge a sinful humanity with a holy God. Nathan, that's me. And that's a message that that Jesus alone can connect you with God. That's a message that a man named Nathaniel in the first century needed to hear that day. And that day he was reconciled to the Father through a relationship with Jesus Christ. All because of an invitation. All because his brother cared enough for him to run and find him. And to say, Nathan, come and see. And we're surrounded by Nathans. We're surrounded by Simon Peter's who simply need an Andrew, who simply need a Philip to bring them to Jesus. It's amazing what an invitation can do. It's amazing what three words, come and see, what that can do. When we invite people to Christ, when we sit down and talk with people about Jesus, we invite people to Jesus, when we invite people to church, and Jesus kind of takes over and does the rest. And our job is to go out and find people and bring people and invite people and just simply say, come and see. And the first question I want to ask this morning is, have you come and seen? Are you a follower of Christ? Could it be that it's no accident that you're here this morning and that Jesus is pursuing you? And you have some people in your life who have been inviting you and telling you about Christ. And here you are. Are you a lot lot like Nathaniel? Are you skeptical? Come and see. Are you like Peter? Do you need life change? Life feels shaky. You, you dream about what it would be like to live life on solid ground, to know what it would be like to live a life of true joy and fulfillment? Come and see. He's Jacob's ladder. He's the only way to heaven. So providentially, God has you here for you to come and see and experience Christ and salvation and forgiveness. Don't leave this place without doing that today. Or maybe, believer, maybe you're more encouraged by Andrew and Philip this morning. And you're like, man, this is convicting this morning. But if I'm honest, I need to be way more committed about bringing people.
I need to be way more committed about being a bold witness for Christ. And I believe church, Schindler Drive Baptist Church, on this Sunday morning, right here in the year 2023, I believe that God is using this text as a wake-up call in our life. How many of you are thankful today that you were found by Christ? How many of you are thankful today that you're forgiven? How many of you are thankful today, I didn't hear everybody, if you're really falling into this category, how many of you are truly thankful this morning that you are found and forgiven in Christ Jesus? Anybody thankful for that? How many of you are glad today that when you woke up, that in Christ you're standing before God isn't based on your performance anymore, but you've been forgiven, fully forgiven, past, present, future sins. You're in the family of God. You've been reconciled to God. You've been embraced and accepted by God. Your eternity is secure. Is anybody waking up this morning praising God for that? That God found you? There are billions and billions of people There are hundreds of thousands of people in our city. There are thousands of people right here in our community. Thousands of families within a five-mile radius of our church, of the place that we sit here this morning, who who did not wake up with that reality in their life this morning. And who, if they die and go to hell today because they don't know Christ, they'll spend an eternity in hell. That's what the Bible teaches And what we need in our community, what we need in our churches, we need to wake up. And we need more found people who are excited about being found, running out into the darkness, finding people who need to be found, and pointing them to Jesus. People who understand why God has us here. He has us here to be a light. Jesus, the great light of the world, Matthew 5... He calls us the light of the world because He's ascended to the Father. He's given us His Spirit. Where is Jesus at right now? He's in us. In order for light to shine, it's got to go into the darkness. And what we need is more found people who are excited about being found and who want to go find some people in the darkness and and who aren't the type of people who sit back and curse the darkness and wish wish a bunch of lost people in our community would stop acting lost and understand that you are part of the solution. How is God going to reach them? What's his strategy to go tell them? I'll let you know on a secret. It's you. It's me. It's us. Christianity is not isolation from a dark world. We, aren't we guilty of that so often? Wanting our Christian bubble, wanting to separate ourselves from the wickedness and the mess. Hey, that's something that we do internally. That's something we do mentally. That's something we do on the inside. But on the outside, we're people that run into the mess to point people to the solution in Christ that they can find to experience an inner transformation. But you've got to go into the darkness to do that. And I'm telling you, we've gotten to the place where we've almost tried to Christianize ourselves out of the world. I'm telling you, if we, if, if we could, if somebody put together a Christian grocery store down here today called it Godly Groceries. Even me for a second. I'd be like, all right. Play some Stephen Curtis Chapman as you're going down the... You have some greeters at the front greeting you in the name of Jesus. That's where all of us Christians, we'd sign up to go have our, get our groceries, wouldn't it? If there, was a, if there was a Christian gas station, whatever that looks like, that's Christian theme. That's where we get our gas. I'm telling you, if they put a fitness center together... And it was completely Christian-themed. I don't know. Call it Jiggle for Jesus, all right? 
Lifting for the Lamb. I don't know. Sweating for the Savior. I got, I got a lot of names that we could call it. That's where we'd be signing up for a membership. Don't hear me wrong right here. I'm not saying that places that like a Chick-fil-A, which have great chicken, but also built on faith values, that's important. They serve a purpose in the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that's not true. I just say we have to be careful lest we forget as believers in this world not to isolate ourselves from this world, not to Christianize ourselves out of it, to remember why we're here. We are not in heaven yet. That's when we'll live in a Christianized society. We're in Babylon. And as Daniel, we need to be bold witnesses who aren't afraid to run into the world, who understand that God's placed us in our workplace that feels dark at times for a reason, to point people to Jesus, to invite people to Jesus, to be bold witnesses, who's put us in the school that we're in for a reason, who's put us in the neighborhood that we're in for a reason who's put us in the workplace we're in for a reason. And we need some people to go sweat for the Savior down at Planet Fitness because there's lost people there who need to hear about Jesus. The scope is huge. Ends of the earth. But the means is small. Found people boldly telling lost people how to be found. That's it. So let's be bold. Let's pray. you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I hope the gospel's been clear to you this morning. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled with the Father, and we'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be down front and would love to pray with you and help you take this first few steps towards following Christ, what that looks like. Believers, like I said at the very beginning of this, this is convicting. I think we all have room to grow here, but the gospel frees us to admit our weaknesses. This is a place where it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay not okay if we're in Christ. We want to grow. And he gives us his word to feast on, to help us get some nutrition and to grow. So let's grow this morning. Let's not just be hearers of the word, let's apply it to our lives. This morning, think about that person. Who are those people who have been in your mind this morning? Spend some time praying for them this morning. Spend some time talking to God recommitting your life to be the bold witness that he's called you to be. It's no accident you live where you live. It's no accident students at your desk is positioned where it's positioned in the classes that you're going to be in tomorrow. It's no accident that God's put you in the house that he's put you in and around the neighbors that he's put you around. It's no accident that God gave you the kids that he gave you. It's no accident that God's given you the family members that he's given you. We're surrounded by people who need to be found. And the strategy that God has in place for them to hear about Jesus is for us to go tell them. So let's, let's recommit this morning to be bold witnesses for Christ. And let's remember why God has put us right here where he's put us as a church. 